lead marketing for Ultra? I used to do the PR, so um, forget forget in PR. So I did uh, World Club Dome, Ultra, and a couple of other festivals. Um, I kind of got my start actually in running nightclubs when I was on, I was 15, 16, and uh, I started running nightclubs in Cork in Ireland, you know, oh, wow. um, and started like promoting my own events and stuff. But there, there was like, there was a gap in the market in Cork. There was, there was no events for, for over 18s. Everywhere was 21s to 23s. So what I did was I started hiring hotels and like hiring out venues and started promoting my own business. But a funny story, actually, um, in 2015, I ran an event. It's like it's a big party here in Ireland. It's um, it's called Junior Cert Night. You know, it's um, it's basically like an end of exams party. And um, I ran the event, sold four thousand tickets, thinking the venue could hold four thousand people, but the venue could only hold two thousand. So this is the link here. My friends actually were saying, "There's this documentary on Netflix. It's it's about Fire Festival. You have to watch it." And I watched it. I'm like, "Oh my god, this is." Obviously, on a, a much larger scale with the fire festival, my friends would be joking, saying you're like Billy McFarland, you know. But that's nothing to be proud of. But since this was about six years ago, and we've we've come back since then. But man, I just want to say uh, thank you for coming on, and I suppose let's just jump straight in, into it if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's uh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to join, and you know, hopefully, can shed some light on things that will be helpful to others. Who's Brilliant, the typical man. listener? Who's like the typical listener of your podcast? Are they people that work in the music industry or? Yeah. Yeah. So it would be a lot of people that work in the music and the event and entertainment industry. Um, I, I only started maybe around six or seven months ago, but um, I, I would have a lot of connections in the music industry that that have been on the on the podcast already. Um, so a lot of young people, a lot of students as well that are getting into event management um, are always reaching out. They've actually reached out so many times to see if I could get someone from the Fire Festival on the podcast. So this is a really great opportunity. So just to start off, what, what did, what's your background and how did you get involved in, in festivals and events? Yeah, so um, so I have a unique background, I guess, since the events industry has taken even, even some more wild terms. But uh, my background originally was in finance and economics. So I went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, which is the number one finance school in the United States for undergraduates. Um, studied finance and economics, kind of came up during the financial crisis. So it was 2008. Uh, I was a junior when the crisis happened and the world economy started falling apart. Um, graduated in 2010 and was just so dated uh, by the current economic system, by the fact that there was no, there were really no structural changes uh, post the great financial crisis uh, to, to, you know, change uh, mm. the impact of a follow-on crisis. I think we're seeing that now with this whole COVID situation. You know, structural issues like wealth inequality, um, like uh, corporate large corporations paying their executives huge salaries and bonuses based on pumping their stock prices higher. Um, obviously, that's not what the show is about. But I was jaded, yet I felt lucky to have a job in 2010, and I I started my my career in investment banking, um, mm. and I worked at Jeffries and Company in New York, and then Morgan Stanley after that. Uh, received a private equity offer for a fund in San Francisco and decided that that wasn't the path that I ultimately wanted to be on. Kind of felt like I got a good education um, during those two years as a banker and 
and left and decided to become an entrepreneur. And my first company that I started was to protect investors against the follow-on effects of that financial crisis, which I think we're seeing more today in you know, federal reserve banks, central banks of economies printing an unprecedented amount of money, negative interest rates, things like that. And the effect of, of those kind of policies to further drive income inequality um, is what I was trying to protect against with my first company, Tinco. But I was 23 years old. My partner was 24. We were creating a new asset management business with zero track record uh, and a new product with zero track record and competing with banks during the loosest credit environment in the history of financial markets. Mm -hmm. And so that failed. But as that was failing, I was using my banking skill set to help companies raise capital. And one company that I worked with was in the event space. It's called Prime Social Group. Uh, at the time, they were they had one festival called Number Fest in Athens, Ohio, and they were, um, you know, basically a, a, a nightclub promoter anchored into thirty or forty college campuses across the Midwest. And these college campuses were some of the largest colleges in the United States. Think University of Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Michigan State, Indiana, etc. And so they were kind of building this great foothold. We raised capital in 2013, uh, just after SFX had gone public. And I was like, man, this is, this is like so much cooler than finance, you know, like yeah. understanding business is helpful, uh, understanding how kind of the numbers work. And, and that's what I worked with the guys at PSG on predominantly because the economics and the music, you know, the live event space can be really challenging as, as I'm sure you know, Adam. and, um, and so, yeah, so I became a partner at Prime Social Group, have worked with them for, for eight years now. Um, I'm much less involved in the company, but we have kind of, you know, quarterly board check-ins. And I got the I inspired to start my own festival business uh, through the guys at PSG. We partnered and we created something called 90s Fest. Right. And 90s Fest was this, you know, going back in time, kitschy, all-inclusive festival where guess you know there was we weren't selling cool we were selling fun um and and silliness nickelodeon came on and was sliming people we had tamagotchis and teletubbies and and uh, Polly shore hosted salt and pepper headlined it was it was just a hilarious thing and this was in 2015 in in brooklyn and then Amazing. we did another one in governor's island uh, one in pittsburgh one in columbus ohio uh, and ultimately I ended up selling, uh, 90s Fest for the digital assets that we built, uh, at the end of 2017. And it was around kind of, as I was trying to sell 90s Fest that a friend of mine connected me to Billy and to fire. Right. And so, you know, they say I'm a festival consultant, uh, is my title in the documentary. It's a cool title. I have, you know, high school kids reaching out to me every now and again, being like, how, <laughs> how could I become a festival consultant? That sounds amazing. <laughs> Super fancy. I'm like, yeah, no, that's, you know, like I do, I do startup consulting essentially um, still mm -hmm. to this day and festivals operate a lot like startup companies, except that, you know, there's people at the event and, uh, and so you can't, you know, there's no such thing as a quote unquote minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to be perfect um, or at least really, really fucking good uh, when people get there. And so, you know, it's, it's, there's an interesting overlap, but Fire was really kind of my last, I mean, I worked on a few conferences and different style events after Fire Festival and after 90s Fest, but really kind of moved away from that industry um, over the last few years. 
Amazing. So did Billy specifically assign you to any like certain certain tasks or did he just say, come in, clean up the festival or what was your actual task for the festival? Yeah. So originally I thought it was going to be like high level, you know, McKinsey type consulting, look at across the board, kind of speak to the to the lead production managers, understand what the problems are and try to solve them holistically. But, you know, it became really clear early on that there was just not enough manpower to solve the small on the ground problems um, that were going on. And so my first weekend there, you know, I I had, as I mentioned, I was a banker. So I have like one of my skill sets is um, financial modeling and I'm really good in Excel. And so I sat down, there was a table of like, including one of the investors and, and Billy and, and a few other people. And they were um, building a spreadsheet to rent housing for, media staff um the influencers basically v- vip guests plus staff press marketing professionals etc and uh i started working on the spreadsheet with them and then basically they were like hey do you think that you can run point on basically off-site housing and logistics so anything that was not related to the festival grounds um that was tied to accommodation i managed amazing um so what were your what were your first impressions of billy did he like come across as a reputable guy or did you just feel like there was something fishy from the start was there that kind of vibe about him or could you just kind of describe what he was like like that first meeting you had with him did you believe in his vision so i believed so uh, you know, it's been a long time. So obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, and, you know, I've seen the documentaries and I can't imagine mm. a, a scenario where my, where my, um, even my impression of my first impression has not been jaded, right? Like I, I'll try my best to, to describe those feelings, but I imagine that it's completely skewed at this point. Um, I think, you know, I think my, my original impression of Billy was he was connected to the right people. Uh, he was a good fundraiser and the marketing strategy that they had executed for fire was, was phenomenal. And so there were a lot of um, strengths and I noticed that there were a lot of problems on the logistics front, but in the first day or so I saw, you know, he was quick to make decisions, which initially to me felt like, okay, like he might have, he might be a good leader in, in that front. And, you know, having, Having been in his position with 90s Fest, I know managing all of the elements of, of a music festival business on your own are extremely challenging. And so I was like, okay, he, you know, he might have what it takes. And then of course, over time, you start to realize he made quick decisions, but they weren't really thoughtful decisions, um, specifically around uh, you know, production elements. They, there was not like it was like, oh, we'll just we don't have enough room on the main campground, so we'll just build a second campsite not kind of considering what are the additional staffing needs, security, uh, for sure. Food, you know, uh, Porter John's every, everything. Right. It's just like, Oh, this is what we'll do. Uh, and then it was up to the team to go execute. I didn't realize he was, I mean, I knew he was a salesman. I didn't realize he was like a complete, complete liar. And maybe, you know, maybe from the start, he like, he wasn't, I don't know at what point it became, you know, he started faking documents and things like that, but um, it's, it's really, it's unclear to me. Yeah. 
Crazy. Um, what was, so I actually just watched the documentary last night again. And what was Ja Rule's actual involvement in the festival? It just looked like he was on a massive vacation the whole time in the, yeah, in, I mean, in the, the documentary. Fo- the footage that they got for that documentary was like legitimately a vacation. It seemed like I wasn't there, but it was yeah. when they were filming the, the video. Ja Rule, before the festival, from the time I arrived on the island until the festival itself, Ja Rule came once and I think okay. his role was like mostly as a figurehead, um, mm. probably helping raise capital, providing, you know, some quote unquote clout to the project, but he, he was not really involved in the production. Yeah. And yeah, in some ways I, you know, I, I felt bad for him because I, for sure. I don't believe that he really understood what was happening to what extent. Mm. And then of course there's the soundbite in the documentary where he's like, it wasn't fraud. It was false marketing. <laughs> I remember you're, that actually. You're like, yeah. oh man, like you're putting your foot in your mouth. But of course he's just trying yeah. to protect himself. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I just remember seeing like Kendall Jenner posting a video and it just went absolutely insane. It was genius with the orange tiles. That was absolutely genius. It's, it's so simple, but so effective. Um, like, how much were the influencers paid? Weren't they promised like luxury villas in return for like posting? And how did you guys access these influencers to get them on board? Yeah, I think, you know, that was before my time um, and not something mm. that I was involved in, but I, they were paid, you know, like they, mm. the budget, the budget for that film was over a million dollars. My God. Those, those influencers, you know, they they model for companies like Prada and and they get paid. Mm. So, uh, um, what I was uh, my understanding was it was a quarter of a million dollars uh, for the four leads, you know, Emron, mm. uh, Kendall, um, I, I don't right. know the other two, at each um, mm-hmm. to make that video. But of course, like you know, there's there's also all these questions around are they responsible and yeah, then they get sued and, well, and Kendall like, just lawsuits. I think Kendall just settled. I saw I saw news on that. I mean, are they responsible? I don't know. It's like if mm. if Brad Pitt does um, a commercial for Cologne, and then you know six months later it's discovered that the Cologne um, causes rashes, mm-hmm. and all Brad did was film the commercial, and they paid him. Like, how how was he supposed to know? Yeah, that's a tough call. For sure. So like, of course, the, these influencers like imagine the festival was was going to happen and believes in the idea, you know. So yeah, absolutely. It's and a I tough think call. It's it's a tough call, and I, I'm sure there's some laws around that, and and For sure. you know, people around these celebrities probably protect them from those types of situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, at least one good thing that came out of Fire was the push on Instagram for paid partnerships. So, Mm -hmm. you know, before fire influencers were doing a lot of promotion getting paid, um, on the, on the back end or, you know, basically on the side without making it very clear that they were getting paid to promote products. And Mm -hmm. now if you're promoting a product, it's very clear. Of course, there's some second for every decision, there's second and third order consequences. And for, you know, that decision, a lot more of the the dollars have flowed to Facebook than to the creators themselves, which I think is disappointing. But um, but I think it's necessary for fans of influencers or celebrities to know that they're being compensated to promote products. Um, for sure. Otherwise, yeah. it's it's you know there's there's a conflict of interest. 
I think after Fire Festival as well, the influencers have kind of caught on. You know, you'll always see now if it's a, a sponsored post, they'll have like hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored in the post, um, which I think is great as well for fans to see that it was like a paid post. You know, um, let's talk about like the basics of event management here for a second, like ensuring you have a venue like properly secured. What actually happened with the festival being, wasn't it on like Pablo Escobar's island? And um, Billy was told not to promote it as Pablo Escobar's island. And the first thing he does is post a video saying it's on Pablo's island. <laughs> how much did he, do you know how much he paid for the island? And like, must have been a daunting task to find a new location. Yeah, I, again, that was before I got there. Um, I was on the island for four weeks. I think that's... Uh, right. So you were brought in about a month before the festival took place, right? Yeah, I was brought in a month before. So by the time I was brought on, they were already starting to develop the um, the site on Great Exumas. Mm. Right. So, so what were your thoughts when you arrived in the Bahamas and you saw the site for the first time? What were the red flags that you just were you just like shocked by what you'd, you'd seen? Yeah, I mean, it was it was clearly a mess. I think I knew coming into it that it was going to be a mess. Um, so you kind of level set your expectations, and you know nothing was built. Um, calls with with you know uh, vendors were were not going over well. Um, there were still four weeks to the event, so you know you kind of hope that it's going to start getting built and that there was a you know a better plan in place uh, for them to be executing. I mean, another kind of little known thing about the festival is that there was actually music played. Um, mm. The team at Unreal Productions, I mean, the name is perfect for them. They're Unreal. Like they came, they worked 24 hours a day for an entire week, having not received full payment, but in mm. faith that this would be a really big event. Um, all of the stage sound and lighting was set up for the festival. Uh, they did a phenomenal job. Um, mm -hmm. Luca, who's in the documentary, uh, is is the founder of that company. And they were some of the ones that got screwed the most because they came, they spent a lot of money, they built this. And then um, music was played the first night. The, the festival grounds were not ready. And, um, and the event got canceled. And then the Bahamian government came in and basically took over the site, including Luca's equipment. Oh my God. Unreal's equipment, which was not owned. A lot of it was rented. And so... That equipment was stuck on the Bahamas for months. Mm -hmm. That's uh, insane. Which is a bummer. So he obviously, that company, of course, lost a fortune. That's absolutely mental. Um, so did Billy at any point, like, of, of course, Billy, like, knew at some point that the festival was, was doomed. Why didn't he, like, pull the plug before it was too late, do you think? Yeah, I mean. There I'm was too much money in, involved and. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't claim to to know how the mind of Billy works, especially mm -hmm. after you know watching the documentary just like you and being mm -hmm. completely blown away by the fact that he was running running another scam as he was being investigated by the FBI. Like, unbelievable! I, I, I can't I can't imagine <laughs> what was going through his head. But yeah, I, you know what I would guess is there's as you know like cancellation insurance in the events industry is mm -hmm. extremely expensive and hard to come by and only triggered by a force majeure. And even now, like we've seen with COVID, like those policies are imperfect. I think South by Southwest um, had to cancel due to COVID, but it was not yet declared a national emergency. And so insurance wasn't going to pay them. And that would basically put them out of business. 
So every year, you know, your festival is recycling dollars into the event. And if you cancel it, those dollars are gone. You put 50%, yeah. you put 50% down at least for artists up front. Um, you know, that's for a festival like fire, that was probably over $10 million for two weekends. Um, you know, you put down the venue deposit or pay for the venue outright. You pay for the marketing and promo all before you sell your first ticket. And mm -hmm. so, you know, my, by my estimation, Billy was in the hole for $19 million and his investors. And so, oh my God. you know, you either cancel the event and know that you've lost $19 million and the things of failure and probably your company, the app that you're building is going to go under, or you try your best to make anything happen so that you can recoup some of those funds through food and beverage sales and merch sales and things like that on site. Mm -hmm. I have been there. I've, I have done exactly that. You know, I've had um, before that event that went horribly wrong. I knew it was going wrong, but there was so much money in the pit that I actually couldn't, couldn't pull out. But thankfully it wasn't, you know, it, thankfully it didn't go so wrong that, you know, people got hurt or anything bad happened. But um, in Fire Festival's case, it was just unbelievable. Can you paint a picture for me? What was it like 24 hours before the festival? What was everyone's vibe like? I'm freaking out. <laughs> yeah, everyone's just going insane. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just, it's just overwhelmed. You know, everybody was just overwhelmed. We were massively understaffed. Um, supplies just didn't arrive. I think a really good example of something that's really quite small, but um, a critical piece of infrastructure that never arrived were walkie-talkies. This, this, <laughs> Those it, are essential in a it, festival. This was a multi-site build um, with a team at the airport, um, a team at you know Coco Coco Beach. I forget exactly what it's called. A team at the mm -hmm. main campground, a team at the production house, uh, a, a, a team at the private airport, a team you know that was responsible for all of the transportation to the houses that were off the island and. You know, we were communicating in a foreign country um, with cell phones, and mm. it, it was not ideal. Yeah, um, it doesn't really work. <laughs> so, you know, it's just like these little things, like not having mm. not having enough staff. You know, the hospital not having enough housing for staff, so the staff staying on the cruise ship that we got at the eleventh hour, um, and then a storm happens, and we can't get the forty odd hospitality staff off the cruise ship because the cruise ship was. It was the best option we had for housing. We got 225 extra beds each right. night um, when, you know, we were short 500 beds as of a week before the festival. Uh, but the cruise ship ended up being uh, 15 to 20 feet too long for the dock. And we couldn't convince the dock, the dock uh, master to, to let us give it a try. Uh, and so we were doing a, a whole tender operation and there was, you know, 40 hospitality staff that, never got off that boat until middle of the day. Oh my God. So, so attendees started to descend on the site. Like how, weren't they like held for hours at some bar before being transported to the site? Yeah, they, they, um, I think, you know, there was rain the night before. And so the site was already unfinished. And I think the, the ingenious plan was to have, the remainder of the tents built while attendees were arriving to the site. The attendees' bags were supposed to have been tagged in Miami with their tent numbers, but the tent numbers were never assigned because the team was 
was not able to get the tents up in time to make the assignments. And so the bags were never tagged and then it rained and most of the tents were completely flooded. All of the additional building materials for the tents that were supposed to go up the next day were completely flooded. And so the guests could not arrive in the site and put their bags down. Um, the bags were separated from the guests at the airport to streamline the process through customs. But without tags, they all just got dumped on site inside of like a, a large um, cargo container untagged, which like it looked like the, you know, I only saw the video. I wasn't at the site when this happened. But it looked like the Hunger Games, people trying to get trying to get their bags. Yeah. And then, of course, you needed, to, you needed to put the people somewhere. So the people ended up going to a bar um, at the second the second site. And, you know, they were eating and dancing and drinking, but they were in their plain clothes. They didn't have their bathing suits on, things like that. Um, oh my god! Messy. Were you were you on site when all of this was happening? When the pandemonium was striking, everyone like descending on the island. Were I you actually, there? I actually was at at the airport. Um, okay. You know my my role was in the morning. My role was to um, to try to get the influencers and media and staff that were coming off of the planes to their houses. And I was, mm. you know, and to, another issue with the island was there's no addresses on the island. And unless you live there, um, you don't know where the houses are. And so there was me and one other person who knew where all the influencer housing was. And so we had to direct all of them through the taxis um, and car companies to get to their houses. Uh, and that, you know, as I was doing that also, because there's no hospitality staff, I ended up being one of the first people that guests arriving saw. Right. And, um, and what I realized was, as that was going down, people were coming to me for housing that I had never allocated uh, mm. to VIP houses because Tablist, the company that's now out of business, the VIP booking agency, were not informed that VIP housing was completely booked. And up until the last day, we're still selling VIP upgrades um, and people were buying them. So there were houses that were just coming down like, hey, we have a 12 person house. And I was like, well, I don't have you on the list. And so the next thing I tried to do was get in touch with Billy. It was impossible to get a hold of. I drove from the airport to his house and he wasn't there. And then I went to the production house on site. And I mean, it was just chaos. Like everyone was physically, physically grabbing me, like pulling my shirt, mm -hmm. like, you know, just, it was, mm -hmm. it was quite a disaster. Unbelievable. So, so when the event's been canceled, what does the, morning after look like is billy like facing the situ situation head on trying to solve the problems or what's actually happening on the island i heard he like fled or something and that uh, you and some some other dude andy had to like you know face everyone yeah I mean, so andy left um billy left a bunch of the the core fire team left um there was a group of production managers that stayed and you know there were i think 1100 people that had arrived to the island um, it, the, the irony is that many of them wanted to stay. I mean, they were on the island, things had settled down, they had their bags. Um, you know, it's a beautiful place. You could just go to the beach, worst case scenario, and there was free booze. So people wanted to stay. Uh, but our mission was to get everyone off the island immediately. So, you know, we worked with the charter company um, to get people to go home. And Billy, I think, was working with Skywalker, uh, who's in the Hulu documentary, Daniel Goldstein, on the phone. Mm -hmm. and uh trying to get that sorted and you know by the end of the night like this is this is one of the greatest accomplishments of um i think of of the event and like why when people ask me about it i'm like you know i'm actually quite proud 
Um, yeah. You know, the team of maybe there were like seven of us left that stayed, hadn't been paid, hadn't slept in days, basically led an emergency evacuation of 1,100 people off of the island in under 20 hours. Wow. Good and, job, man. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I was like, okay, like it, we did, we did the best that we could to resolve this yeah. issue in a crisis situation. I wish that I wish that I had spoken up more about canceling the event. I actually, you know, there was a big meeting the day before that I missed because I was busy dealing with staffing housing. As all the staff were arriving to the site, I had to apply people to houses and we, we still didn't have enough housing for staff. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a disaster. But um, I wasn't there for that meeting when the head production manager basically was like, we need to cancel. And then Billy was like, money solves all problems. Didn't you send an email to yeah. Billy and saying that you actually, we need to cancel the event? And what, yeah. what did he, he said something ridiculous. I can't remember the reply. It wasn't, but... it wasn't him that said that, actually. That's the funny okay. thing about storytelling. It was right. one of his uh, employees. But yeah, it was like, well, at least because I was going to, I said I'd lead some yoga classes for the VIP guests once things settle down. And that was like the original plan. And they were like, at least they'll see your smiling face and yoga skills. Uh, oh my god yeah. uh, in europe what, what are the key failures here in your opinion you know what were the reasons for the festival just completely falling apart um the key failures in my opinion were that there was never enough time from the beginning um mm. the there was far too much money spent on talent versus production and production staff um the Festival was booked during the busiest weekend of the year on um, Exumas, so none of the hotels were available because the best option would have been to just book out the entire Grand Isle Hotel for the event, mm. um, but it was all booked for the uh, National Regatta there. And so all they had to do was move the festival one weekend. Uh, and you know, one weekend back early on when this was all happening, and it might have actually happened. I think, you know, part of the story that's untold is we were probably a week away from having, you know, a real festival um, mm. with, you know, the tents were, the tents were actually quite nice. Um, you know, there mm. were, there were full beds, um, there was carpeting, there was furniture, uh, you know, the outside of the tents was not, they were not beautiful. They weren't like your kind of yurt type tents, but yeah. They were, they were nice. And that's another failure of the festival was that the marketing team marketed something before they knew it was physically possible. Mm -hmm. And so if you market, you know, a, a villa package and then somebody ends up in a tent, then that's, that's false marketing. That's fraud. Um, For sure. And so, you know, they had many opportunities to recommunicate to guests the changes that were happening, but never chose to communicate that. Uh, and I think the head of marketing has like since changed his name. Um, <laughs> what was his name? Grant or something? Yeah, it? yeah, Grant. Oh my god, he seemed like a really nervous character. <laughs> yeah, you know, like he's another one. It's like he was stressed and overwhelmed and had never done this before. For and, sure. Yeah. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, just like complete bullshit on the marketing front was a huge issue. Not listening mm -hmm. to the experts, they hired two really legitimate production companies before um, the kind of like third-party contractor team that I was working with got hired. The first quoted them a $30 million budget uh, to get it done. They said, no, it's too expensive. The second told them, we can do it for cheaper, but you need 12 months. And they said, mm -hmm. no. And then someone came to them apparently and said, I can do it in less time for a lower budget. And uh, that, was, that was a huge mistake. 
they should, you know, like w- with proper planning, it could have been a great event. Um, 100%. And, and yeah. that's why, like, you know, I know at this point, it's been over a year since the documentary and, you know, I'm not looking for vindication, um, mm. you know, like mistakes were made, but I think, I think it's, you know, important to note that there was like a production team working 24 hours around the clock mm-hmm. to try to make something happen, yeah, not coordinating sure. on the marketing front. Mm. And just the communication was complete, complete shit with guests, with staff. You know, there was uh, this fire fraud website that went up and all the staff were basically threatened with lawsuits if we were communicating with anyone, the reality mm. of the situation on the ground. So yeah. it was, you know, it was, it was a mess on, on all those fronts. The, the crazy thing is, I think, you know, people, you get in that kind of raft with a crew of people that are all rowing in the same direction, have heart and character and want to make something happen and know that they're facing an uphill battle and just mm-hmm. have the desire to solve problems. And we were solving mm-hmm. problems left and right. Like when we lost even Star Caterer, you know, Andy and a team flew to, to Nassau and got the Culinary Institute of the Bahamas to come and fill the gap on the food. And that was seven days before the event, you know, and so wow. when seven days before the event, there's no food. It's like, of course, the event has to get canceled. But because these small problems were getting solved, it almost enabled it to keep going. But everybody mm-hmm. was solving problems with the best of intentions. But it's like at a certain point, if we all had just stopped and been like, there's no fucking way that this is going to happen. We have to stop. That mm-hmm. might have been for the best. Same thing with the cruise ship. Like I was sending an email every single day being like, we ha- we need, I was told we needed 400 beds um, for, for offsite. After a week of reviewing the data, it was 1,200 beds. We had 200 when I started. This island has a 3,000-person population, and every hotel was booked. And I needed to get 1,000 beds. You know, this was like in three weeks. It was just a gargantuan task. And we almost pulled it off because we got that cruise ship, right? And like had we not gotten a cruise ship, it would have been so obvious that we couldn't have housed everyone. So cancellation would have been inevitable. So there's like... You know, and looking back, it's like fuck. The the better work that the production staff did, the more likely it was, the more likely, the less likely it was that the event would get canceled. And so, it was almost this like catch twenty two situation. Mm-hmm. Were you ever paid for any of your work? Was it you know were you promised payment at the end of the event, or what way was yeah, the payment? So I was paid thirty three percent of my fee for the month upfront uh, to to go to the island, and then the the remaining sixty seven percent was never paid. My God, how is the, so this entire experience, like how has it impacted your life? Um, has there been any like positives come out of this at all in, in like, of course it's a massive uh, negative experience, but have there been any positives come out of this? Yeah, I think, I think um, one, I met incredible people and I worked with just an amazing team um, on site, the production staff, you know, as you know, mm. from the event space, like, Event production is a labor of love. Yeah. People are not making, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. Um, they, they do it because they care about bringing people together in community and having fun. Exactly. And they love the music. And so, you know, everyone that's working there is like salt of the earth type people, except really for the core fire team who are in it for really, I think, just for the influencers. But I, I made some great relationships with, with the team and, and people that I love. And, you know, we've lost touch over time, but I still have nothing but love for that, that team. The other was this kind of like sense of, of extreme confidence, which I know might sound surprising to listeners because the event was, quote, was a huge failure. 
But within that huge failure, as I mentioned earlier, there were just like rabbits pulled out of hats and ridiculous problem solving um, yes. by the team. And so a confidence that if I can go through this experience, 30 days living on an island, it was kind of like survivor that I can do anything. Exactly. Um, and so that was another positive. And then frankly, like, you know, the documentary, I don't know what headspace I was in when I agreed to do the documentary interview. <laughs> I was feeling particularly vulnerable. Um, mm. I did a I, good job, man. Great job. Oh, uh, thank you. My name had been, I mean, I was just sharing my story really. And yeah, my name had been released by a news publication against my, um, will, uh, Mike.com who no longer exists, told me it would be off the record and then put my name in an article. So I felt like I was already tied to it and I felt like somebody was going to tell the story and it might as well be <clears throat> me and, and the other production staff that I knew, you know, had done nothing wrong except not push harder for cancellation. And, exactly. and, you know, thank God, like Chris did a phenomenal, Chris Smith, the director did a phenomenal job telling the story. And so what the documentary offers, I think is an opportunity for reflection for those of us out there that are sharing, you know, not the full picture on social media um, who are, you know, challenged with FOMO and jealousy um, mm -hmm. and depression based on their social media activity and I've been since the documentary one, the documentary provided a platform for us to create a GoFundMe campaign to pay back Marianne Roll and the other um, production Amazing. staff. Marianne's mm -hmm. campaign was for 50K. I think it ended up being oversubscribed, $250,000. Oh my um, God. I, I believe uh, last I checked, there was $150,000 in the GoFundMe for the. Um, Wait, was, was this the woman that um, owned the restaurant? Yeah, exactly. That you're talking about? Amazing. Um, um, and, and so, you know, that was a huge positive getting those people paid back. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then, uh, you know, I travel, I travel the world right now. Um, oh, wow. There's, yeah, there's $233,000, um, raised wow. of the $250,000 goal. Uh, That's incredible. Yeah. For, for, um, fire festival uh um wow. fiasco and so we created this campaign so uh, you guys actually made this campaign yeah we helped we helped marianne with this campaign and i posted on my social media and so amazing that, that's like a I'll, huge deal i'll post a link to that as well yeah, yeah it's sure. super close to the, to the goal um and then, you know, and then I go around and I, I speak to high school students. I speak on shows like yours. Um, I speak to colleges and, and startup conferences about Amazing. a couple of subjects. And one of them is failure. You know, I mm. went through one of the one of the greatest public failures in recent memory. And frankly, it's been nothing but, I mean, at that time, it didn't look like it, but it's felt nothing but positive for me. For um, sure. If you can get a positive from a, from a failure like that, that's absolutely incredible, you know? Yeah, it's a huge, um, huge learning experience. For sure. And just because you fail does not make you a failure. I think that's exactly. like a really important message that. Exactly. And I remember in 2015 when my event went wrong, you know, I'd, I'd just be in my city and people would just be like, man, you need to seriously give up. Why are you in the event management space? Um, you know, just not a single venue in my entire country would work with me because of this event. And I just kept knocking on doors kept asking people could i just run some small event and i started small again a thousand people two thousand three thousand four thousand 
built my brand again. And then I started working with Ultra and kind of built my reputation back. You know, if you can pull a positive from a failure like that, you're doing you're doing really well, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. reputation is everything, right? For sure, for sure. You only get one. Um, for sure. So. Um, so Billy's in prison now, right? Yeah, to the best of my knowledge. Oh my God. Um, so... After the festival, I don't know what is going through his mind. He creates this company, what's it called VIP NYC Access. What's he what's he selling here? Like completely fake tickets to the Grammys and fake meet and greets, all this kind of stuff. What do you think is going through his mind? Why do you think he would, during an investigation, I mean, the FBI are investigating him. Um, why do you think he would do that? Dude, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's actually absolutely insane. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's definitely something seriously, seriously wrong there. Um, do you think any of the attendees will ever get paid back? Um, no, I don't think so. Never. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, so have you completely gotten out of the event space, out of the festival space? What are you up to now? Um, right now I'm working uh, on my podcast, Look Up. Uh, Look Up started after the FIRE documentary came out to discuss some of the issues with our relationship to technology and social media. Um, mm. I was, you know, in 17, I was asking myself after FIRE the question of, you know, is Billy and what he did with the FIRE festival promotion just a microcosm of what we all do online, which is share just a fake version of ourselves um, and so all, true. Yeah. all this influencer culture and what it, what it's created in society of FOMO and jealousy and and fake it till you make it and entrepreneurship mm. sort of things. So look up, explore, started exploring those subjects. And now we talk about mental health and consciousness and um, offer tools to community and listeners that they can use to kind of improve, the, improve themselves and go deeper. Um, mm-hmm. It's a labor of love. I absolutely love, the, love doing it. I'm, I'm guessing you enjoy podcasting as well if we're here. For sure. Absolutely uh, love it. And I'm a startup, uh, startup consultant. Um, so I work with different startup companies. And the, the most recent company that I'm working with, I'm leading business development for a company called Steward, S-T-E-W-A-R-D, gosteward.com. We provide financing for, for small farmers that are practicing regenerative agriculture. Um, so these farmers are you know, great stewards of the land. They, they don't use herbicides, pesticides. Mm-hmm. They don't use heavy machinery. They don't use immigrant labor. Um, you know, low cost, low cost labor. They, they, um, are, take care of the land. They rebuild the soil, which soil, um, regeneration is one of the best ways to sequester carbon in the atmosphere. They're providing food to, to their communities in the United States. 23 million Americans live in food insecurity, meaning that they have access to calories, but they don't have access to proper nutrition. Um, it's said that in 60 years, we won't have enough soil to, to grow, um, to sustain our population's food supply. And so we need to move to regenerative practices in order to rebuild the soil for future growth. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's a phenomenal project, a great company. We have a 501c3 foundation. Um, you can invest directly through the, the Steward Farm Trust. That's a Reg A offering. So anyone can put $100 in and those mm-hmm. go directly into loans to these farmers. Amazing. Um, yeah, I, I've, been, I've been loving working on that project. That's amazing. I saw that you're into yoga and meditation as well. Is this something that you're always into? I actually, I started meditation after, so 
you know yourself, like in the events, in the entertainment industry, it's just constant buzzing and, you know, it can just build up anxiety and stress within you. So I remember after um, I started my event company, I, I started to experience, you know, feelings of anxiety and just constant stress. So I was introduced to yoga. My brother actually introduced me to yoga and meditation. Is this something that you just do because you enjoy it or are you doing it as part of like um, a way to calm yourself down or... Yeah, I think um, my yoga journey has been uh, over a decade now. Uh, right. It started in 2008. My father had a heart attack. Um, he, he survived, but it kind of led me to rethink my whole um, perspective on health and mental health and right. stress. Uh, I was a big weightlifter at that time. Like my, my biggest goal was to be benching 325 as many times as I me could. Me too, man. That's, that's me. So. All, all I cared about was getting yoked. <laughs> and uh, I actually, at the same time, it hurt my shoulder uh, lifting. And mm. so the break and I, I went to a yoga class to try to rehabilitate my shoulder and I fell in love with it, not for the practice itself, but for the way that I felt after, you know, those five or ten minutes on the mat in Shavasana when you're laying down after, you know, that physical practice is just like the best. And so I became kind of addicted, um, but then I worked in banking and you work a hundred plus hour weeks. And so I didn't really have that much time to practice in New York, uh, but there was a donation-based studio nearby called Yoga to the People. And I would go as, as often as I could. And when I quit banking to start my first company, I would go to Yoga to the People. It started off like once a week and then it grew to like seven days a week. And the only, the only time that I would find true calm and peace because starting a company is just like producing a festival or an event. It's just chaos, like chaos and stress. And it's, it's, you know, the mm. mental health issues that founders face are enormous. And so I started practicing and I was like, this is what's getting me through the ups and downs of entrepreneur life. And when I closed off that first company, um, I took the time to become a teacher. And so I did my 200 hour certification at yoga to the people. And I've oh, taught wow. over a hundred classes at their studios in New York in, in 2014 and 2015. Um, all donation based and just have continued to go deeper and deeper into the practice. Um, I lead virtual sessions now online. Um, I do free virtual breath work every Monday morning mm -hmm. at 8 a.m. Pacific uh, through my Instagram account with a company called Kensho. Um, I got to check that out for sure. Holistic health company. Yeah, it's awesome. And and for me, it's, it's, you know, there's different levels of yoga that are important and Seva Seva S-E-V-A or service is the most important. Um, and, and for me is the best way to get out of my own head is to serve right. others. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at in my practice today. I, I do breath work and meditation every morning. Um, as yeah, much I started as using Headspace in the last like two or three months. It's just the guided meditation app. It's, I find it really helpful. Yeah, they've offered a ton of free resources. Like they really stepped up um, during COVID. Yeah. Calm's another fantastic app. My friend Jesse Israel, who came on the podcast, leads um, the Big Quiet, which are mass group meditations. Um, you know, it's it's uh, there's so many resources out there. Waking Up app, Sam Harris, Joe Dispenza's app, Deepak Chopra and Oprah have um, have their app. So I highly recommend it to anyone. You know, we can make time in the day for it. It's often the, the days that I think I don't have time that I need it the most. Um, mm -hmm. it can be as simple as sitting quietly for 10 minutes. Uh, it doesn't have to be super woo woo. You can do it for, pro for productivity purposes. It enhances your mental capacity. Um, 
man, it's been, it's been a lifesaver, frankly. I, I do not know where I would be without, without that practice. Me too, man. Just the meditation, it's completely changed, changed how my, my brain works. It, like I used to be filled with anxiety when I was working the, in the event space. But since starting meditation, I'm just a, com- a completely different person, for sure. Um, Matt, I really appreciate you coming on. I won't keep you any longer, but man, that's such an unbelievable story of you, you know, coming out of the ashes like that and, and coming out a, a better person from all of that. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on. Where can people find you? Ah, uh, yeah. So you can find me on Instagram, um, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, Mark Meinstein. Um, my website, thelookuppodcast.com. Uh, my podcast, Look Up, is available anywhere that there's podcasts, so Spotify, YouTube, uh, iTunes, Apple Store. Um, you know, the, that's my main medium. Um, if you go to the website, you can sign up for my newsletter. I write a weekly newsletter. I talk about economics. I talk about mental health, philosophy, just really whatever's interesting. Amazing. Um, yeah, so those are the best ways, I think. You can get in touch directly. Um, my email's on my website. I'm happy to field any questions. You know, I'm here to support you and your projects and, and endeavors. If I can be of help and of service. Amazing, man. Uh, Thank you so much. That's it, brother. That's, that's really good it. stuff, man. I really appreciate you coming on. And what I'll do is I'll have this posted in the next couple of days. I'll tag you on the Instagram and get all of your links out there. All, all right, right, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, you so much, brother. Have a nice day. You too. Cheers.